We're going to read this morning from the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to open up to Acts 15. And if you do not have one with you, we have some that our Frontlines team can hand out to you. So if you just put your hand up, they can bring that to you. So once again, Acts 15. We're going to begin at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas, along with some of the others, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed both through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up among them and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the words of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. If you'll move down to verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This is the word of the Lord.
morning. We're uh, going to continue on here. My name is James. If you are new with us, uh, I'm just going to be opening the Word of God. I'm one of the pastors here of this church, and so I'm glad to uh, speak and to teach, and we're going to move along here. I want you to picture with me, if you see a, saw a man who was standing there on a beach, deserted island. He's been waiting to be, uh, to be rescued. And all of a sudden, after a number of years, they come and you see a boat come along and they, a rescue party is sent aboard. They see and find this man and they, they look and he is grateful to be, to be saved. But they see on the beach, you see three huts sitting there. You go, they, they go, are you... Is it just you? Is it, are you the only one here? And they see these three huts and they're, they're trying to figure out why would one man have three huts on the, on the beach? So they said, so what's going on? Well, th- this hut over here, he says, is my home, okay? And this hut here is my church. And he moves it and they go, well, okay, so one hut, two huts. What's the, th- what's the third hut? He goes, well, that's my former church. Now, we think it's a, it's a little bit of a silly story, but I'm going to talk to you a little bit about unity, about church unity today, and it does highlight a concern about unity among believers, because I would say one of the most conf- confusing things for our culture, when, you look at, when they look at the church, is to understand why how the church can actually say that we are unified, one body in Christ, when they would look and they would see the divide east to west. There's an Eastern Orthodox church that is uh, separated from the Roman Catholic church. And then in the Western culture, they would see that same Roman uh, Roman Catholic church and Protestantism. And then they would look at Protestantism and they would see all these denominations, Anglican, Baptist, Pentecostal, Reformed, Wesleyan, Presbyterian. And so we should speak and we can speak about and affirm unity in the body of Christ. But we've got to be honest. We've got to be honest about the sad reality that sometimes many of these uh, separations weren't over things that probably should have been separated over. But at the same time, is there ever a time I'm asking this question. Is there ever a time where uh, separation is warranted? And I think we would have to say in the church, and say yes. When the issue matters, when the issue at stake affects the heart of the Christian faith, when it affects the gospel. And so if you haven't turned there already, we're going to come to Acts 15 today. We're going to look at it. We're not going to read everything word for word, but we're going to find that Luke records one of the biggest uh, like one of the big debates of the church, church fight. And in this, in, in this time, and the text was, that was just read uh, to us, so I'm not going to reread it, but I want to just sort of bring it back into a nutshell. So here's what's going on. People, these uh, Jewish believers, have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They, are not, they aren't uh, arguing. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But they continue to hold on to the belief that you need to uh, continue all the Jewish cultural practices with all of its commitments to the law, the Torah. And so these believers, they begin to hear about Gentiles. They, they hear about Gentiles who have experience the Holy Spirit just like what's happening in Jerusalem. 
And it's happening up in Antioch, and they hear about that all these things are uh, happening in similar ways. And so these believers make it their mission to, uh, to go down, because Jerusalem is high. They go down to Antioch, which is north, though, okay? And they begin to, find, to make their, their mission to teach that Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, yes, but you need to still hold on to all the aspects of the Mosaic Law. Particularly, they had to... Uh, all these new converts had to be circumcised. And that's what we find here in verses 1 and verse 5. Like any previous God-fearing Gentile had before to be accepted and to belong into the people of God. And so it's kind of an understatement here. It's like no small dispute. But it's really the idea that, this is a, that there's a sharp dispute happening. There is a, it's rising up and Paul and Barnabas are ready to go. They're, they're, they are going at an argument so much so that the church says in Antioch says, we got to figure out this, this thing. we got to figure out the answer to this question. Paul, Barnabas, a bunch of others, you guys head on down, head on to Jerusalem and get the apostles and find out what's the answer to this question. So we've got to step back. We've got to step back to understand this. And we're going to talk a little bit about circumcision this morning. Now I'm going to try to make it as PG as possible. But a circumcision uh, is there. We're going to talk about this for a second. Because why is it so important for Paul to make, a, to make a trek? 15 days it would have taken to walk from, from Antioch to Jerusalem for a church debate. I'm hardly willing to get in my car most of the time for that kind of situation, to have a church discussion. I don't know about you, but that's not most, of, most people's idea of a good time. But Paul, on a human level, is uh, successful. He is a successful church planter. Churches are, are all over this region, are, are, uh, have been planted by Paul. And, and he is a church planter, is a writer. Um, and how successful is he? Well, I would say, uh, wouldn't you, that if millions of people are studying your writings 2,000 years later, weekly, and they're sitting there, and they're studying it word for word. I'd call you pretty successful in your career. He, he is, on a, on a human level, uh, busy. He is not a guy who's just sitting there and going, I wonder what I'm supposed to do today. I just want to make up something to do. Paul is busy, but he's not too busy to walk all this way for a debate. And I believe it's this, because of this. Because this debate goes far beyond just circumcision. It's going right into the idea that the teachers here are messing up the gospel. And that's why this is important. The good, the good news that Jesus is who he said he is, he is the Savior, he is the Lord, he was born to this earth, and he died, and he rose again. They were messing up the, the gospel in this way. We'll talk about this. But first of all, in order to understand this, we have to understand circumcision a little bit. We have to go back, and if you want to join me in, in uh, Genesis 17, we're not going to uh, spend a lot of time there, but we are going to go back, to, and we're going to find out about uh, sort of the origins of this thing called circumcision in the covenant. And circumcision here is that God chooses in this situation a man named Abram, 
to enter into a covenant. A covenant is a relationship where there's a bunch of expectations, uh, both from one party to the next. If you do this, I will do this. This is what a covenant relationship is. And so Abram, God at 99 years old, God chooses to enter into a covenant relationship with this man years after he had first called him to follow him. And in this passage, we find out what kind of relationship this is going to be and what the expectations are of the relationship. And in the midst of, in response to this, what, he, what God, what God uh, expects in terms of obedience, God makes a promise. And he says here that I will multiply you. I will multiply you, Abram. I will make your offspring a great nation through a son. Now, his son is not the one that was born through his servant. And he had taken uh, things into his own hands. They had taken things into their own hands years before. But that God promised that he would have a son born to his wife of 90 years. This is not a normal situation for childbirth. Circumcision was not all that God required him to do. If you were to look in verse 1 here, it says that you are to what? Walk blameless, okay? And to walk with God. But circumcision comes later on, and it's to be the symbol of this. It's a symbol of his relationship to God, and it symbolized what was supposed to be the moral conduct that would set them apart. Circumcision, in this physical way, meant that he would bind himself to God in a relationship. And so circumcision is a physical thing. It's, uh, it's the surgery on the male penis, where it was... Uh, it's surgery on a male penis. You can go Google it, and it wouldn't be weird, okay? But it has significant spiritual value. Because physically, Abram acquires a son through the, youth, the use of that reproductive organ. But the interesting thing is that symbolically, he's now supposed to go and engage surgery on that same organ as a willing act of submission to God. And the intention is this, that no Israelite male could ever engage in a sexual union in his life without remembering that they, through this act, they belong. They belong to the nation of God. Circumcision of infant sons did not save them, but it evidenced the faith of the family. It evidenced the faith of the father and the mother in the God of Abraham. And as a young child grew up, it was a sign to him that he was different than the other boys of other nations. They were different in this way. But the sign most of all was to remind them that they, that what God required in terms of being blameless and obedience, there was a covenant relationship there. And that in order to enjoy the benefits of this blessing that God was pouring out on the nation, they needed to obey and to be blameless and to be circumcised in order to be accepted as the people of God. And so in light of this, in light of reading this passage, we now go forward in the book of Acts. We 
go into Acts and we find out that we, we need to remind ourselves that circumcision in Acts 15 is the Jewish symbol. It is the Jewish symbol of what it means to obey and to be accepted into God's family. And so there is an inescapable Jewish worldview happening here where obedience to the law is the pathway to a relationship with a holy God. And so to think of a Gentile that would, to be accepted without being circumcised was obscene. It was outrageous. This idea was completely against what they had been taught. It's worldview changing. And so then we can begin to understand why these Jewish believers are struggling in this way. Struggling to understand this place. And they, they had come to this place where they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're not wrong in the, who the object of, is of worship. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But they also draw on the consistency of their past. What they know about God. They believe God to be consistent in their known history. And so they conclude that circumcision must still be necessary to be, a, to be a part of this family, to, be, to belong to, to this holy God. But Paul and Barnabas, they had re- received a, a revelation that was contrary to this from Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So, uh, concerning God's work amongst the Gentiles, they saw it in, with their own eyes here. They, had, they were declaring all the things that God was doing in these, in these nations, in these, amongst the people. And so they were so convinced that it brought, in, it brought them into a major conflict. They weren't willing to just back down. And so this, this conflict had to be addressed by heading off to Jerusalem to have a big discussion. And so what happens here, if you were to read on and we heard about, is that they, would ga- they gathered everyone up. Everyone's actually, at the beginning, uh, fairly encouraging to one another. They're greeting each other. They're excited about what God's doing. But then the, the, the purpose hits why they're gathering, the teachers stand up and they say, they clarify their, their position. And they, they say, all Gentile believers should still be required to follow all aspects of the Mosaic law, especially circumcision. And notice in verse 7 here that Peter is consistent with his nature, he speaks first. Peter is the one who is, is uh, the one who is going to going to be known for being uh, brash, to be the first talker. He's one of the leader types. So he calls out the Jewish believers by reminding them of the failures of their past. He argues here that the Jewish people have been unable to carry the weight of the law in their past. They've been been unable to be obedient to the law perfectly as their way of salvation. So the Gentiles, are, are, they're all experiencing all the same work that we are, and yet, yet Peter's saying, we're putting on them this burden. There were 613 laws that needed to be applied. Circumcision was one of them. But in essence, and I'm going to paraphrase for a moment here, Peter looks at these guys and these men and uh, this crowd that is gathered, and he says these things to me. He says, I don't know about you guys, but I never felt like I was keeping the law perfectly. Did you? I've never been able to uh, know how much I'm supposed to do. I, sometimes I have trouble remembering all the laws. How far am I supposed to travel on the Sabbath before it becomes a sin again? 
Am I allowed to eat camel, or is that a bad idea? What about turkey bacon? Is that one okay? You know, when we, uh, what about all these fabrics? Spandex, just bad fashion, or is this one not, uh, not acceptable? You know, he didn't say these things, but he's going through, and he's, he's clarifying, and he makes this statement. He says, no matter how hard I, we tried to keep the law, I never felt righteous before God. John, were you able to do this? Thaddeus, what about you? And then he clarifies, he makes the statement about his position. He says, Peter says, we, in verse 11, we believe that we Israelites will be saved through the grace of our Lord just as the Gentiles will. And so the heat of the argument isn't, just, isn't about circumcision itself. It is about how people are saved. It is about the gospel. How people are accepted by God. If people were a part of God's family through circumcision in the past, how would they be accepted now? It's not that they're, again, getting the object of their faith wrong. They're getting the order of, of grace wrong. They believed, these teachers, that you, had to, that you had to place your faith in the Messiah, but then you had to obey. And I'm just going to put up a, a bit of a, an equation. For them, it was grace plus obedience that equals salvation. And they, so they had this equation all built out in their minds, in their lives. But the apostles are here are saying that it is not grace plus obedience. It is grace by faith alone equals salvation. That's how it, that's how it is. And obedience is the byproduct of a life already saved. This is so key to get. Because we're going to talk about this for... Um, for a moment, because before we start getting so self-righteous about people who say, how could they mess this up? The reality is that this is one of the biggest things that Christians do all the time. That we get wrapped up and we get caught up in how, how to um, work our way to salvation. How to be saved by some ways of not only from grace alone, but how well did I obey this week? The Apostle Paul, uh, later on in Colossians 2, he understood the importance of why does it matter to get the gospel right? Why does it matter that faith is in Jesus Christ alone? And I want to, I want to read to you, uh, it's, a, it's the New Living Translation, because I think it helps us get this idea across. And it says in Colossians 2, 8 through 12, it says, Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all fullness of God in human body, so you are all complete through your union with Christ, who is head over ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with him when you were baptized. And with him, 
you were raised to new life because you trusted in the mighty power of God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And so this hits on the question, what Paul's saying here, on isn't it just okay to be sincere in your spirituality? Maybe you're here today and you're exploring. Isn't it just okay that I'm sincere in what I'm pursuing in terms of my, my spiritual life? And Paul says, no way. Don't get captured by empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. That's what he's saying here. Instead, know the good news. Know the truth. Know the gospel by which you have been saved. You know, Charles Spurgeon, he writes in his book, he says, It is not great faith, but true faith that saves and the salvation lies not in the faith, but in the Christ who the faith trusts. It is not the measure of faith, but the sincerity of, the faith, of faith, which is the point to be considered. And so the truth of the gospel, why is Paul and, and all these others willing to go to all these lengths? Why are they willing to walk 15 days for a church debate? Why does getting the order of grace matter? And I believe with all my heart, and I, I don't want to preach that this is one up to my, to my heart this week, is that it is because it is a matter of freedom in your life. It is a matter of freedom of living in this life. If you believe in Jesus plus obedience, that you've got to be cleaned up in your behavior, you've got to get things right before Jesus saves you, do you always ask the question in your life, Am I obeying enough? You will never, never have true peace. And you will never have the assurance that you are accepted into a family and you are accepted by God. You will have a spiritual anxiety that causes you to doubt that your, all your sins, past, present, and future, are truly covered. You will have emotional unhealth that comes when you, you don't know that you belong anywhere. That's what happens in families. Emotionally unhealthy people are people who struggle with the fact that they don't know if they belong. And when you are unable to say, I know that God accepts me, not based on what I am doing here, but because of Jesus, you will always face that in your life. And so as circumcision was the indicator of belonging to the covenant people, now grace through faith in Jesus provides initiation into God's family. This is why this passage matters. This is why it's more than just a text about church debate, why it's not some boring thing just tucked away, why it's actually there is because this matters for your life this week. And all the things, I want to ask you this question, is there Jesus plus something else in your mindset, in your faith walk this week, in your life? You might say, oh, no, I, there's nothing like that. Think about how you live your life. Think about your anxiety. Think about your emotional health. Are you having trouble believing that you are accepted by Jesus, whether you had a good week of bang or whether you screwed up royally this week? 
All the other world religions make people approach God or nirvana or salvation. You have to do stuff. You have to you do certain things. You have to practice in a certain way in order to have assurance of some kind of salvation. But the gospel is more than advice. It has advice in it. There is advice in the scriptures about how to live. The, there is a, uh, moral commands to live by. But the gospel is news. That's what it is. It's news that, that there can be freedom in this life. And I think it's pretty good news. It's such good news to rest in acceptance. To accept, to simply accept the gift that Jesus is. We obey God's law, but we want to, we want to put to death sin. I want you to get this. I'm not diminishing that there's no obedience in this Christian life. But it is not the basis on which we are saved. But in the midst of all this good news, we're going to wrap up here. I want to talk about the fact that in this, uh, in this passage today, there is a reality check that Christians, even well-meaning ones, can become a hindrance to unbelievers or skeptics in coming to faith. And I, I, we see it actually when we look at verses 19 here. I want you to, to look down because we have Peter speaking and then we have James who kind of journeys through the Old Testament in, and then he makes his, his determination on this issue. And in verse 19, uh, James says this, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In essence, we should not make it more difficult to those who are outside of the Christian faith from coming to Jesus. And so the gospel in itself holds a certain amount of fence. You cannot escape that the gospel itself holds offense, that we are not gods of our own lives. You tell someone that in their, in their life, they, they say, I'm in control. That we, are, uh, that we ourselves are not, uh, that we need a savior. We're in desperate need of a savior. That this savior was a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago. But James is here saying that if the gospel is an offense, that's one thing. But we should not set up man-made barriers that will hinder others from coming to Christ. And so when I thought about man-made barriers as I studied this today, I think there's a couple of ways in which we, as believers, we've got we to gotta be uh, honest, take account. We as a church have to ask ourselves the hard questions. And it comes in the way of, of drifts. It's never just like one day happens and then you, you change your behavior. It's a drift. And I want to talk about two, two drifts that the church ha- does often that we can do that hinder people who are genuinely asking questions about faith. And the first drift is this, that we drift from a focus on internal transformation towards outward conformity. One of the pastors I like to read, his name's J.D. Greer. He was paraphrasing, he was, t- he was reading and talking about Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, uh, in his writings, he says that our hearts are hardwired for works righteousness. You know, that, that idea again that we, how what we do determines how God feels about us. 
So unless we're actively uh, preaching the gospel to ourselves, we will always sink back towards workspace righteousness. But according to John 17, it says this. I'll tell you this. We won't go there. God loves you and me. And he loves us so much uh, because he loves Jesus. And he loves you as much as Jesus. That's what John, John 17 uh, says. Do you know that? Wow. Do you know that God loves you if you follow him? If you put your faith in him, he loves you as much as he loves Jesus. The idea that I could take or add or anything, do anything to God's love, isn't that absurd? Jesus says that the essence of the law is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love others. And everything else is the outworking of that kind of transformation. Now, the Bible helps us to, to know what love really looks like. It looks like justice. It looks like uh, sacrifice. It looks like truth. But, and, but the core of all these things is a heart of love, and that heart is produced by faith in Christ. So when communities, when we lose the gospel, we often move towards a focus from this inward transformation to outward conformity. And when that happens, a whole host of things that were never meant to be laws become laws in church life, okay? And uh, you see a lot of shaking of heads out there right now. You know it. You've been, if you've ever been in church, you know that there is the Bible and then sometimes there's church laws, okay? In their day, it was circumcision. In our day, churches make rules about whether or not you drink alcohol or you don't drink alcohol. And here's what the reality is that now the trend is sometimes is that people are looked down upon if they don't drink alcohol out there. They're like, what? You don't have the freedom in Christ like I do, right? We make laws about whether or not you have tattoos or piercings. We make laws about clothing instead of living by principles of modesty. Because principles of modesty, what does that mean? It's easier to have just black and white rules. But if we drift towards outward conformity, but we lack a passion for inner transformation, it's a recipe for the inner disease of legalism to take over our hearts. And so this is a, a recipe for disaster, for those who, uh, especially for those who are exploring faith here amongst us today. And I just want to speak to this for, for a moment that's because we gotta, we got to honestly talk about legalism. we got to talk about these things because some of you have, are exploring the claims of Christ in your life and you haven't yet crossed over into believing, but you're asking the questions like, is this really true? Is, can I trust this faith? Is, it, is, this, is these lives around me any different than mine? Or are they just really good at uh, cleaning up 
for a service on Sunday. And they're asking not only about faith working, but they're asking about is there more, is there more to this here than just moral conformity? And so drifting from inner transformation to conformity, it causes confusion to the actual message of the gospel. And it gives a, a false narrative out there that, church, that Christians are just about the rules. And so I ask you this because I say nothing is further than the truth. We are a group that more than, than anyone else, we need the Holy Spirit just to help us obey. So let me ask you this. In your, just quietly, you don't need to think about this question is, do you ever find yourself in your, at your home, maybe here, quietly thinking that you are superior to someone else in this church because you believe you have han- a handle on your behavior and they don't. Do you? When the church puts, projects a put-togetherness that people have to, like, look away, look a certain way, they have to conform to a certain thing in order to be accepted by the, the body of Christ, to be accepted by God, are we not telling them that they need Jesus plus obedience in order to be saved? Are we not doing some of the same things that is happening here in this passage? And when we do this, we set up a major roadblock to people hearing the gospel. And this hurts my heart. And I want to finish here with the, the second drift, and it's, a, it's this, that we have a passion. We move in a drift that is we move away from a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders. And I would say, for many of you here, you are the insiders of the faith, okay, here today. I want to speak to this because it would be so easy for us as a church that our passion shifts from reaching people who have not yet joined our missional communities, who have not just yet joined this, our reunion on Sunday morning, and that we would just begin to pacify our own preferences. It would have been easy here for Peter and Paul and all these other apostles to pacify the insiders. They were the influencers. They would have been people who, have been, who were committed. But they were willing to not keep the peace for the sake of the gospel. They were willing to let uh, things actually become a disagreement because it mattered not to put roadblocks in the places of, uh, and hinder people from coming to Jesus. And so the question I have is really around, uh, it's really a confession, sorry, it's a confession here today that we as pastors can get so focused on our preferences. I was so challenged this week. It's like, I know how I want things to be. What I think uh, a church should look like. And I had to confess before God the, the, the preferences that I had for not only our, my own missional community, but what I thought Sunday morning should look like and saying, God, what do you want it to look like? 
you know, one of the things about, about this is that uh, I want to make you happy. I like job appro uh, approval. And your reality is that sometimes you complain. People who are not here don't complain, right? It's easy for us, Matt, myself, the elders, the leadership to re-engineer re re a church that would please you. But we have to be constantly asking the question this, are we making it hard for them? M music, preaching, comfortable spaces, size of community, giving up nights of the week to live fully into a missional community, into a DNA, all these things are on the table of change if it means that they are, if they ever become hindrances to people coming to, to know Jesus. And so when we shift from pacifying ourselves, we forget the gospel. The gospel is this, that Jesus gave up being the ultimate insider. Do you know this? He was worshipped in heaven, for goodness sakes. He was the insider of heaven, and he willingly left the worship there in order to become an outsider. An outsider that would be mocked and suffered and beaten and killed so that you and I could be accepted. That is the motivation behind this. Not guilt or anything else, but that we would remember Jesus today. So the question is, Church of the City here today, are we making things difficult for people to enter the family? Are you drifting in any of the ways that we just talked about here? Are you drifting from law, from, uh, from grace to law? Are you, you drifting from pacifying ourselves over a passion for those who are not yet here? And as we finish up here today, we, I want to point you to, to the beginning of chapter 16. And we meet here a young man, Timothy, who is, uh, the desire from Paul is to take Timothy on a missionary journey with him. Timothy is the son of a, of a Jewish mother and a Greek father. He is uh, an outsider in all cultures. He would, he would not have been an accepted person. He had a struggle of identity. And after all this debate, if we're going to read through here, on circumcision, and then the decisions of the apostles uh, happening where they say, Jewish, Gentile believers, you don't have to be uh, circumcised. It says that Paul takes Timothy and does what? He is circumcised because they were about to go to a Jewish audience where it would have been uh, a, a hindrance to their gospel witness. And I thought about it all this week, is that he, even though he didn't have to do it, he did it. He had, a, he had freedom to not do it. He gave up that freedom in order to reach someone else. And this burned in my heart this week, is what freedom am I willing to sacrifice for the sake of someone else hearing the gospel? And so we're going to pray I've written down a couple questions on the back of your sermon notes just to think about as we, as we sing. You know what? We're going to have to, I'm just going to close in prayer. And then we're going to invite you, if you have children downstairs, because we went a little long here today, that you can go grab your kids. And if you want to come back up and, and enter into a time of just singing and reflection, we'll, we'll do that. 
because the kids program, they only have so much material, okay? But think about this. Am I willing to give up the freedoms that I don't have to in order that I would not be a hindrance to someone coming to, to faith in Christ? Let's pray. God, we ask you today that your word would continue to work in our hearts. And we ask today that you would impress upon our lives and our hearts the great need to take seriously the gospel. Help us in our drifts in our own lives from trying to earn any kind of salvation in our lives. And Lord, in Holy Spirit power, would you show to us anything that we are holding tightly to that we are being a hindrance. We're putting up man-made roadblocks for others to hear the gospel more clearly. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. We invite you in this time. This is a time where we say, honestly, week in, week out, the Holy Spirit is doing a work in our hearts. If you need prayer for this, do not have an aura of put-togetherness that you have nothing that you need to, to, uh, to pray for. So we're going to invite our team, come forward. If you've got to get your kids, that's fine. But let's respond for a couple of songs here, and we'll receive prayer for anyone who needs healing, anyone who needs to respond in prayer this morning. Just pray this.